This is Homebound Organ. Two weeks ago, we had planned an episode focused on the solace of nature during the pandemic. And then George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police. And suddenly, stories and songs about Oregon's mountains and rivers felt out of place. While we considered what to do with this podcast, I saw these powerful songs and monologues posted by Cedric Lamar, a local actor with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and decided to give him a call. Hello? Hello, Cedric? Yes. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. So, uh, you kind of have to be a jack-of-all-trades, because, I mean, you're a composer, you're a musician, you're an actor as well. Is this... I guess I would call myself a storyteller. I tell stories and I use different, you know, ways to tell story, different mediums and different vessels, depending on what the story is I want to tell and how it needs to be expressed. After the, the May 25th murder of George Floyd, what's the story that you hear in this time? I see a story of, of anger, of frustration, of sadness, and a reckoning. I believe that we as a country have never, never had to reckon with how our country was built. And yes, there's been many attempts for, the, for this reckoning, but it has always come short and it has always been squashed by the people in power. I'm nervous because there's a part of me that's like, gosh, if it doesn't happen now, when will it happen? Will, will it ever mm-hmm. happen? Like, it's weird to look at this time and, and think of the potential because it's, it's so, so sad. It's so, so sad that the death of, of so many African-Americans is why we have this quote-unquote potential. And that itself is, is a bit sickening. But yeah, it is long, long overdue that we looked at how this country was built and, and, the, and the repercussions of that, uh, especially to the African-American community. And, you know, so if you're on social media at all, people are suggesting books and they're showing videos and they're putting up petitions and they're sharing different posts. And I saw that you wrote something to white friends, white allies, asking that people engage the work, not just in outer actions, but in what you called the work of sort of deep introspection. And you talked about mm-hmm. this as a, as a, as a private work. Could, could you say a little bit more about what you meant by that? The world of social media is, as we know, not the real world. And it is very easy to show up and to present yourself as whatever you decide to present yourself as. So someone can like and share and post about being an anti-racist and they can they can attend you know rallies and they can they can do all of this but if they're also not using that time to understand where white supremacy has affected you and has warped your own sense of self and sense of the world, then then those posts become less and less powerful. They become less and less accurate, and they became more and more of a, like I said, a presentation of allyship and not a true ally. And so my challenge to to everyone is to please, yes, make those donations and and share those posts 
protests and go to go to those protests and do do all of that. But also you must do some really, really deep interpersonal work to see where where this lies in you. Yes, you can ask for better police reform, but if you're not interrupting the racism of your brother or your parents or your uncle or or you're not teaching your kids about what's happening and how we got here, then these measures will only have so much of an effect. You're going to really take something out. You have to take it out at the root. And the root of this country was born on racism. And so we have to look at that in ourselves. No Mm -hmm. one can know if you're doing the work but you. It is a very personal thing. Yeah. That really invites me to to sort of step back from the news, from from my own presentations online, and to have a really – honest conversation with myself about the way I've benefited from the way this current system, the ways I don't want it to change Mm -hmm. or I'm afraid of the change and what I need to do personally, if I'm really going to live out the values Mm -hmm. I say I have Mm -hmm. to myself, (laughs) because I'm, I am likely to lie to myself. I'm likely to continue to live in the facade or in the, on the surface of myself and not really speak truthfully about my desires and what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. It's not easy. At the same time, like it is past time and, and it is something that black people will tell you like, well, we've, we've been doing challenging things all of our lives and our, in our parents' lives and our grandparents' lives. But I, re- I recognize lying is easier. And as you said, like there's so much fear involved in all of this. The fear of things changing, the fear of how things will be different. Yes, will I still have the things that I recognize as me on the other side of this? And I'm not a fortune teller, and I I don't know what will be on the other side of this. I believe that it is a more generous and loving world for all people, and that diversity only enriches one's life. But the road to it will will be challenging. I want to switch gears a little bit because, you know, so you're a storyteller. You look for different modes and different ways of telling stories. And you're, I see you as kind of a lightning catcher, you know, where we're in this particular moment and somehow what you're living or what this moment is for you and and in this world, you filter it into performances, into music, into what you compose, into, into these little mm-hmm. uh, video vignettes you're doing. And, and one of the ways you, you have filtered this time is this, uh, song mm-hmm. called, uh, Don't Let Go. Why did that speak to you? What was it about that song that you wanted to perform it with your friend Royer? And and present that the song "Don't Let Go," who's, which was written by uh, P.J. Morton, expresses solidarity with people in mourning. And I wanted to give just a moment to acknowledge that grieving and mourning is part of the process as well. If we don't acknowledge that part of the process, the other parts are going to be, you know, very very difficult, um, if not impossible. See, there's a reason. 
Cedric Lamar and Royer Bacchus singing in an empty parking lot in downtown Ashland. In 2018, Marjorie Trueblood was serving as the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Southern Oregon University here in Ashland. Marjorie told a story at the hearth about her experience living as a black woman in a predominantly white region. Her story was told just months after the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, had made national news. The theme that evening was Tales of Kindness. Marjorie now lives and works in Minneapolis. Yeah, that's good. Woo! That's a good group out here. Most of us are familiar with the quote from Nelson Mandela about none of us being born hating another person, that we have to be taught to hate someone. And if we can be taught to hate someone, we can be taught to love someone. Fortunately for all of you, I had a great teacher to teach me how to love and how to show kindness to strangers. That person is my mother. Her name is Karen Lang. And when I was a preteen, probably around 10 or 11, my mother decided to make a shift in careers. She decided to go from being an attorney to being a minister, a huge shift in our single parent family. She went back to school. And during this time, I don't know if you remember this, but it was really popular to see four letters W-W-J-D. 
what would Jesus do? It was huge in the circles that I was growing up in the Midwest. And while we could see it on T-shirts, on bracelets, on necklaces, some people thought it was just a catchy slogan. But for my mother, it was a question of reflection and a question of practice. So what would Jesus do? For my mother, it meant inviting and welcoming the stranger, not just into the church, but into our home. That meant for my three, my siblings and I that we never knew who was going to be in our house when we arrived home. The strangest, most wonderful, most challenging people. I remember one weekend, it was an Easter weekend, where my mother decided to bring one of her classmates home. At this time, we were living in Gary, Indiana, very similar to Stockton, the black Stockton, which was a murder capital as well for a while. She brought home this white woman who was blonde and had a spiky crew cut and glasses. She was German, she was lesbian, and she was an atheist. And she decided to take the risk to come home with my mother to Gary, Indiana, to go to church at this African-American church on Easter Sunday. (laughs) She was open and she was curious, and our congregation was open and curious and welcoming and accepting. Not only was she welcomed at that church, but she broke bread with us later in that evening, and it was a positive experience of welcoming the stranger. And it was one that me and my siblings could get on board with as well. My mother also wanted us to have more interactions with people from different countries. So when the opportunities came up for us to learn from others and and be involved in foreign exchange programs, my senior year of high school, I had a Mexican brother. He lived with us the whole year. And I had an Ecuadorian cousin who was constantly at our house. And the cultural exchange was great. But probably the most distinctive person that my mother invited to our house was a woman named Mary. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Mary. And while I've told you about the identities of these other folks, it's important for you to know that Mary was an African-American woman, someone who shares in our identity. She was about 40 years old, and my mother had met her when she came to visit the food pantry. For whatever reason, none of us knew why, they had built a connection, there was a bond. And she decided that she was gonna let Mary live with us for a few weeks. On the face of it, that sounds normal and welcoming and the kind thing to do. What I didn't say was that Mary was a crack addict, she was a prostitute, and she was trying to escape a violent situation with her pimp. My mother, for whatever reason, thought that giving her a home within our home, that she could possibly help this woman. It was hard for my siblings and myself, if I'm going to be honest about it, to welcome this stranger. Here is this 40-something-year-old woman looking nothing like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, who's a prostitute, soft round belly, very, very short hair, wearing an extension ponytail, calling my mother mama, taking up space in our residence, 
asking me and my siblings for money so she can get a quick fix, and sometimes commiserating with us to think about the wrongs that my mother had done to us or the, violence, the violent way she might have expressed herself through her language. While I said my mother's a kind woman, she's not necessarily nice. <laughs> through all of these lessons, Through all of these lessons, I realized that sometimes it's easier to welcome and be kind to some strangers than others. And the example that my mother set for me was powerful as I also try to figure out how can I be kind to strangers that I um, interface with or interact with. But her modeling, her example, is not the only reason why I strive to be kind to strangers. And if I'm honest with myself, and honest with you, it's also because I know what it's like to be a stranger. I might not be a crack-addicted prostitute, and believe me, I'm not. Please believe me, I'm not. (laughs) I know what it's like to be a stranger, especially as a black woman who finds herself in mostly white spaces. And that is ever-present when I look at our society and in the media vicariously and also through direct expressions and experiences. In August of 2017, I think it's the weekend of the 11th and the 12th, there were protests in Charlottesville, Virginia. Do you remember where you were? I remember where I was. I was again in the safe space of my mother's home, which is now in Roseburg, Oregon, sitting in her living room on her beige couch between her and my white stepfather with my, at that time, nine-year-old son sitting on the floor. We were watching the news and watching all of these white men descending upon the park with Sperry boat shoes and tiki torches. While we were not shocked (laughs) or surprised, because my family knows that white supremacy and white privilege is rampant in this country, and it doesn't only show itself in alt-right or neo-Nazi movements, we were frustrated, dismayed, and also flabbergasted. We began to talk about what this meant What was the leadership going to look like from our federal government and how this was going to impact our daily experience and being in a very white Oregon. Sitting on her couch, I began to surf the net and look at social media. What were my friends saying? What were other people's experiences? How were they feeling about this situation? I looked at the Racial Equity Coalition Facebook page and people were crying out for help. And they were looking to me and my sister in the struggle, Omarosa Alvarez, for leadership and a response. And at that time, I didn't have one. Oftentimes, I feel impotent. And I was a little frustrated with them, but frustrated at them. How many times are people going to look to me for the leadership for the movement that we need as a community? As soon as I asked that question, I had an answer. A young woman, blonde, white, about 19 years old, decided to organize the rally in the plaza in Ashland. 
All I had to do was show up. And it was a great relief that I didn't have to do anything but be a presence. I got there and other folks started to trickle in. It was a beautiful sight and lots of people got up to speak. Some people of color spoke and talked about how this incident impacted them. Some folks of Jewish ancestry began to talk about their ancestors and their times and the Nazi period of Germany. And there were also people sharing their perspectives of the right to support the First Amendment and our freedom of um, speech and our freedom of expression. All of these perspectives were present. There was a unification of that diversity and it was beautiful and it served some, but it wasn't what I needed in that time. I had to leave the rally to get back home to fix dinner for my family. And on my way home, I stopped at the Albertsons in Medford off of West Main. As I was walking to the store, I was greeted by a white middle-aged man and the alerts were happening for me. Here's someone that I believe shares in the identity of these people that I just saw on the news the day before. But he smiled at me and he handed me a cart and he went about his way. I don't know what it was about that interaction that was so powerful, especially after coming from this rally that was supposed to do this very thing that I was experiencing. Maybe it was because it was an organic experience and someone was really seeing me as a part of the community and not necessarily as this pre-planned, pre-prescribed event where we all come together in a formalized way. Whatever it was, it was important for me and it helped me move on. I said that I know that I'm a stranger because of those vicarious experiences like what happened in Charlottesville. Unfortunately, I also know that I'm a stranger because of some of the direct experiences that I have here as well. In the Rogue Valley, I um, often encounter an experience that I like to call musical chairs. It happens when I am usually the only person of color or the only African-American woman in a space of mostly white people or if it's my family, the only black family in the presence of white families, where people are tripping over themselves to figure out who has to sit closest to us. This encounter has happened several times when my family goes out to dine in Medford. And unfortunately, it happens here in Ashland too, when I've been invited to meetings. It's a painful reminder that I'm not fully accepted in this community. But instead of getting angry or depressed, I know that there are people that love and um, care and cherish my presence here, but I let all of those emotions fuel me to continue to exhibit kindness to strangers. When I see people, especially people of color at the grocery store, I speak to them. I learn their names and I try to connect them to resources. When I'm encountering students whose views I don't agree with on our campus, I make time for them to be heard, but I also share my perspective and we have civil discourse. And I think that this is so important. Because of these experiences, I depend upon the process of reciprocity. 
And I believe if I am kind, maybe it can further others to be kind as well. Like my mother, my kindness to strangers is not only rooted in an ethic of love or even social justice, but unfortunately, it's also rooted in a sense of survival. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Marjorie. Hello. How are you? I'm well. It's good to hear your voice. It's been a while. It has. It has. What What have these past weeks been like for you? It feels very strange to be in the epicenter of a catalyst that has caused such a response before um, George Floyd's killing. I, I was already paying attention to things that were happening around the country and even here in this context. And I was saying that things were going to get worse before they got better. And I still think that things are going to get even worse than they are now before they get better. You said you're paying attention to certain things. What, what are the things you're noticing or paying attention to that gave you that sense? <laughs> Last week, spiritually, I felt, just God felt very far away. Over the weekend, because of the looting or the destruction of property um, in communities where there are a lot of, like, black and brown and lower socioeconomic status folks, it was amazing to see the ways in which community pulled together to do donation drives and just to see bags upon bags of, like, food and cleaning supplies and all of that. So that was like a glimmer of hope, and then I was just like, okay, God, I see you. I saw a poll today that 50% of Americans are in support of Black Lives Matters, which is the highest percentage ever by, by a lot that we've had support. And so more people are, are, are becoming aware and awake and willing to work on this. And... Um, on the other hand, I have friends, people of color here locally are like, I I don't have the energy to do this, <laughs> you know, like we need white folks to step up and and do more, a lot more work than they have been. Is, is that your feeling or experience too, or, or how do you hold that? I think that it's a marathon to do it, and I do think that white people need to step up to do more of the work, but I also think that it won't be read as authentic if it's only white people doing the work. So that there has to be some like strategy, some people saying, I got this part of the journey, you need to rest. And then when you're ready, come on back. What's the message that you think people need to hear in this area in terms of this work around race as you were engaged in it here? What are some things you could tell us in terms of... Uh, what needs to happen? I would say that because it's like so predominantly white in that area, it's not, I mean, you have to work with what you have and the majority of folks there are white and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And, um, but I hope that um, as people are trying to figure out what to do, that they don't drown out the voices of the people of color that are still there saying, listen to me, or this is what you should do, or this approach might not be helpful so that people can still be responsive to what's going on. 
Well, if I just ask you one more question, just what what do you find is your prayer for this this time? Mm. I pray for a justice that is rooted in love and liberation and not like just the justice that comes by way of the law. And then I also pray that we can heal because I know that that also needs to happen. Here in Ashland, we like to see ourselves as progressive, inclusive, peace-loving. But the truth, the hard truth, is that the history of our town and the state of Oregon is deeply rooted in a violent racism. Not only were native people killed and removed from this land, but black exclusion laws were written into the very founding documents of this state. The, The founders of Oregon explicitly hoped that we would become a white utopia. So they made it illegal for black and brown and native people to own land, to enter into legal contracts, to even exist in this state. But there is an opportunity in this time. Now is the reckoning. Now is the time for white folks like myself to enter into deep, honest introspection, followed by real action. If we are to live out that ethic of love that Marjorie talks of, then we need to enter the marathon of undoing the racist systems and structures that have privileged white people and created so much suffering for others. I want to close this episode with the song Colors by the Black Pumas, sung by Cedric Lamar and Royer Bacchus. We were actually going to play this in our previous episode that focused on nature. In this video, filmed in early spring of this year at the beginning of the pandemic, Cedric is playing a guitar, Royer plays a ukulele, Cedric a black man, Royer a white woman. Together they walk and sing and dance through the empty streets of Ashland's railroad district, praising the bloom of nature. But now, as I listen to them and feel their joy, I can't help but sense that loving and more generous world that Cedric envisions as a possible future for all of us. Woke up to the morning sky first Baby blue just like we rehearsed When I get up off this ground Shake the leaves back down To the brown, 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 brown Till I'm clean Then I walk where I'll be shaded by the trees By a meadow of green For about a mile Headed to town all my favorite colors All my favorite colors My sisters and my brothers See them like no other All my favorite colors It's a good day to be Good day for me Good day to see my favorite colors 
Homebound Organ is produced by The Hearth out of Ashland, Oregon, with support from the Jackson County Cultural Coalition and the Ford Family Foundation. Sound recordings by Tom Frederick, Joseph Pilgrim, and Noah Catton are our sound engineers. And I'm your host, Mark Iaconelli. For links to video clips of Cedric Lamar and Royer Bacchus, and for more information on The Hearth and Homebound Organ, go to thehearthcommunity.com.